Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is March 26, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first names only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading from 348D to the end of Plato's Protagoras, and these are posted on the share drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today's readings from the Protagoras begin with a discussion of courage, which Protagoras and many others to this day perceive to be a part of virtue. Here, Socrates places courage in the context of confidence, and he and Protagoras proceed to examine the origin of confidence in the courageous compared to those we hold to be their opposites, namely cowards. They wind up agreeing that courage hinges not on some power of its own, but on knowledge of cause and effect in time, which leaves the place of courage in any definition of virtue very much in question. In driving to answer the fundamental question of this dialogue, which is whether virtue is teachable, Socrates then digresses. Starting with the question of confidence in one's actions to be measured as courageous or not, he then explores the distinction between pleasure and pain which the courageous and cowards experience. Following the thread of Socrates' logic is admittedly difficult, but maybe there's a point in his convolutions that relates to the long-windedness of Protagoras and his own repeated request for brevity. As the thread of logic becomes stretched and extended, any student of a sophist or philosopher will require use of recollection to relate more distant but nevertheless connected points in a dialectic seeking first principles of a thing such as virtue. So after several turns of logic, Socrates arrives at a fundamental conclusion that what motivates any human soul is a quest for the good and avoidance of the bad. By investigating what Protagoras holds to be the attributes of virtue, and particularly courage, Socrates concludes that it is not virtue that saves us from the bad, but instead that knowledge of the difference between good and bad is our salvation. The implication seems to be that we can go toward, but never fully know or achieve the good. As Socrates described it in the Republic, the form of the good is accessible only to our faculty of reason. The form of the good, he said, is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower, so that as a first principle of knowledge, the good therefore itself is unknowable. To seek the good, our remaining option then is to weigh our perceptions and expectations of possible actions to judge the probable outcomes. In a universe of uncertainty, at the core of which is the good of knowledge, the human task is to navigate probability with the best possible knowledge while avoiding what Socrates called earlier in the dialogue, quote, the tyranny of convention, unquote. At the end, Socrates finds no universal form of virtue, but concludes that what we call virtue is actually a construct of knowledge. It is therefore knowledge, not virtue, that is teachable. In opposition to Socrates' view, Protagoras seems ultimately to say that virtue is a universal construct of five forms that somehow fit together with the first principle, although he is unable to demonstrate their differences or common connections. So I thought we could begin our dialogue today with a focus on courage. 
I'll start with the outset of the discussion between Socrates and Protagoras, when at 349d, Protagoras observes that the courageous sometimes do not display any of the other virtues. Then, without digression, I thought we could move to the conclusion of the matter at 360d with the argument that courage is conditional on knowledge and therefore has no power of its own. So let me just put on the screen share here, and I will start the uh, the reading. So this reading, actually, I, I started this at 348e, so it's uh, backtracking a little bit, but this is kind of the start of the discussion about courage. Socrates says, Protagoras, I said, I don't want you to think that my motive in talking with you is anything else than to take a good hard look at things that continually perplex me. I think that Homer said it all in the line, going in tandem, one perceives before the other. Human beings are simply more resourceful this way in action, speech, and thought. If someone has a private perception, he immediately starts going around and looking until he finds somebody he can show it to and have it corroborated. And there's a particular reason why I would rather talk with you than anyone else. I think you are the best qualified to investigate the sort of things that decent and respectable individuals ought to examine, and virtue especially. Who else but you? Not only do you consider yourself to be noble and good, but unlike others who are themselves decent, respectable individuals, yet unable to make others so, you are not only good yourself, but able to make others good as well. And you have so much self-confidence that instead of concealing this skill, as others do, you advertise it openly to the whole Greek world, calling yourself a sophist, highlighting yourself as a teacher of virtue, the first to have ever deemed it appropriate to charge a fee for this. How could I not solicit your help in a joint investigation of these questions? There is no way I could not. So right now, I want you to remind me of the questions I first asked, starting from the beginning. Then I want to proceed together to take a hard look at some of the other questions. I believe the first question was this. Wisdom, temperance, courage, justice, and piety. Are these five names for the same thing, or is there underlying each of these names a unique thing, a thing with its own power or function, each one unlike any of the others? You said that they are not names for the same thing, that each of these names refers to a unique thing, and that all of these are parts of virtue, not unlike the parts of gold, which are similar to each other and to the whole of which they are parts, but like the parts of a face, dissimilar to the whole of, of which they are parts and to each other, and each one having its own unique power or function. If this is still your view, say so. If it's changed in any way, make your new position clear, for I am certainly not going to hold you accountable for what you said before if you want to say something at all different now. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you were just trying out something on me before. What I'm saying to you, Socrates, is that all these are parts of virtue, and that while four of them are reasonably close to each other, courage is completely different from all the rest. The proof that what I am saying is true is that you will find many people who are extremely unjust, impious, intemperate, and ignorant, and yet exceptionally courageous. Hold it right there, I said. This is worth looking into. Would you say courageous men are confident or something else? Confident, yes, and ready for action where most men would be afraid. Well then, do you agree that virtue is something fine, and that you offer yourself as a teacher of it because it is fine? The finest thing of all, unless I'm quite out of my mind. Then is part of it worthless, and part of it fine, or all of it fine? Surely it is all as fine as can be. Do you know who dives confidently into wells? Of course, divers. Is this because they know what they are doing, or for some other reason? Because they know what they are doing. Who are confident in fighting from horseback? Riders or non-riders? Riders. And in fighting with shields? Shieldmen or non-shieldmen? 
Shieldman, and so on down the line, if that's what you're getting at. Those with the right kind of knowledge are always more confident than those without it. And a given individual is more confident after he acquires it than he was before. But haven't you ever seen men lacking knowledge of all these things, yet confident in each of them? I have, all too confident. Is their confidence courage? No, because courage would then be contemptible. These men are out of their minds. Then what do you mean by courageous men? Aren't they those who are confident? I still hold by that. So that was the first part of the reading about courage and confidence. I thought we could just maybe discuss some of what was in there before I proceed to the conclusion of the matter on courage, which is later on uh, in the ending section of the dialogue. And wondering if there are any points here that particularly make sense to you. Does it call into question what courage is? Is Socrates right by going along the line of confidence? Is courage a question of confidence? Or is it something more fundamental? Is there a universal form of courage which somehow overcomes those who uh, would use it in a foolish way? And I think we may have all experienced people who seem courageous but do foolish things that we wouldn't do. And maybe we, we would call that courage or maybe we would call that overconfidence. Um, I'm just wondering how we see this question of confidence here. How relevant is it? And then how do we deal with the question of courage, which frankly, I think I've always had a little bit of an issue with courage in the sense that like Protagoras, I have seen cases where what seems to be courage is actually foolish. Any thoughts on that? Because I think they're, they're going to go on in the conclusion and look at what actually gives rise to confidence. Darren, your thoughts. Hello, everyone. I missed the last two in the Protagoras. I was very sad about that. <laughs> We're glad <laughs> to have you here of, today. <laughs> yeah, I'm very glad to be here, too. Yeah. And it's especially sad for me because I my favorite two parts of the Protagoras, probably the first two parts, um, but I was just really busy with work. So, um, but I caught up with all the reading and um, this last part's pretty uh, difficult. But regarding your question, I think that courage is uh, confidence is a kind of conventional view or perception we have of courage, of what it looks like. And of course, in so many of these dialogues, well, basically all the dialogues in virtue, there's a lot of concern or contrast between what virtue conventionally looks like and what it really is. So, for instance, in the Carmides, um, exploring the virtue of temperance, the first definitions they explore or that Socrates elicits from, you know, the interlocutors is that to be temperate is to like walk in a, like a smooth and slow manner or whatever. <laughs> and there's, you know, they go through all these hilarious definitions and, you know, all these dialogues are can be amusing for this reason because people give these conventionalistic views of what a virtue is and often it's just an appearance it's just a social convention often too it's the convention of the elites and the aristocrats and um and i think uh, what a lot of these dialogues do is show that the virtues what is really a virtue um however we become attuned to that can exhibit themselves in very surprising ways and you can only recognize that in its surprising and new ways if you have a sense of what virtue really is and not just a conventional view so um when i hear that Courage is um, confidence. I actually immediately think of Socrates. And I know you haven't read the Lakeys yet, but like I, I feel like so that that's a dialogue in courage too. And there's um explores courage in the military, um, in war. But 
but there's there's courage in different realms of life. For instance, um, Socrates, I think, exhibits or uh, yeah, in the dialogues, he often exhibits a kind of intellectual courage. And I'm actually when I when I see Socrates at work, so I think a lot of these dialogues, what they provide is a kind of education and how to do philosophy. And when I sort of watch Socrates at work in many of these dialogues, he doesn't necessarily have confidence, but I think he is being shown to have a kind of intellectual courage and exhibiting intellectual courage for us. So anyway, I'm just raising this question. Um, just I just want to say that, yeah, I think uh, confidence is sort of a very conventionalistic view of courage that's based on appearances. And maybe sometimes it is about, sometimes it is shown in confidence, but it's not the essence of courage. And um, when I, so when I read this section, I was re immediately reminded of Socrates. So like alarm bells went off because yeah, I, I feel like Socrates is actually exhibiting something often in the dialogues. He doesn't explicitly say it, and Plato doesn't explicitly say it, but he's exhibiting it in the drama that that sometimes to do to be intellectually virtuous is to maybe you should know what you don't what you really don't know and all the things you don't know, which is not to have confidence. That's a kind of courage too, because people like like we see in the dialogue uh, Lakey's on courage, like the 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 generals. They, they're they're like fighting to define courage and they try to say things with a lot of confidence and they think this you know makes them like manly or whatever but you know socrates sort of does an opposite thing he's quiet he's circumspect maybe that's courage too that's a really interesting perspective that um courage could be admitting that you don't know whereas sometimes the courageous or what we think is courageous the appearance as you said is you know pretending or showing that you that you know so that's a really interesting perspective, actually. I hadn't thought about that, admitting that you don't know as being a courageous thing. Uh, and then, you know, you mentioned the word appearance because they actually do get into the discussion of appearance, uh, which is, I think, an important uh, perspective on courage that needs to be considered. So so thanks for raising those points. And uh, we'll go to Steve. Hello. Um, I think there's... Uh... There's three different ideas here, and I don't, they might correlate at times, but they could also diverge. You got courage and confidence and virtue. So, you know, you can, in most cases, you know, if you're, uh, you see somebody acting courageous, they give the appearance of having confidence. And, in, and probably in most cases, that's the case. But that's separate from them being virtuous. You could be, a gangster, a warlord, you know, so say like uh, somebody that's uh, trading in blood diamonds with children warriors in Africa or, you know, any uh, a gangster in uh, modern cities. And you could have confidence, you could have courage and you have no virtue. You're perfectly fine with being unvirtuous and you're doing courageous acts without any virtue, totally unrelated. You can also be uh, courageous and not be confident. You know, somebody that's, say, a Ukrainian soldier that's scared out of their mind, you know, and has no confidence of that they're going to be able to survive the next day, but they push themselves through to do it. You know, in this case, they're defending their homeland, per se, and you could, somebody could say they're virtuous. In the example of Socrates or somebody, a philosopher, being courageous and pushing forth ideas that they think are virtuous, uh, there's not necessarily a connection between uh, the idea that they're they're being courageous to put forth a virtuous uh, view, 
uh, or that somebody else could be just as uh, dis uh, a deceitful politician that say in the case of uh, Socrates time perhaps was like undermining the Athens because they're being paid by uh, Sparta. So they're being uh, courageous and confident and, and not necessarily showing force or anything of that nature, but having a putting forth an intellectual argument for, you know, a non-virtuous means. Thanks. Thank you. And I think those are really great examples that make us think about if virtue is, or if courage is a part of virtue, where do we draw the line, I guess, with courage in particular? I think maybe the other aspects of, or what are thought to be the other parts of virtue, maybe are a little bit more obvious, like wisdom and justice and temperance maybe, but you know, courage seems to be the outlier. And that's kind of what Protagoras is saying here. And it really made me think about place of courage and virtue, because it's something that you always hear as part of virtue. But then I started to think, well, is it really part of virtue? Or is it only sometimes part of virtue? Or is it not part of virtue at all? Um, so thanks for those examples. I think those are really helpful. Eva, your thoughts? Thank you. Well, virtue is considered as like a mechanism, like systems of thinking. And if it's only thinking, then it's not the virtue that we call virtue. So when you have virtue, you just like, you know, think, you come, you, you process, then we expect to do something. We, we, we expect the virtuous people to show a reaction or action when it's necessary. So courage, of course, is there, but I think the main thing that really separates virtuous people and uh, too much talking people is like the thin line of being responsible on your words because yeah, courage seems to be like, okay, you have to speak up and do something or say something. But on the long run, it might be better if you don't say or do something. And just like go with the process or try to see the big picture. So I think that is a very unique situation. Yeah, courage sometimes means that you have to speak up or do something. But there's there's a harder version of courage where you just do not say anything. And that's that's I think maybe picking up on Darren's theme, maybe of sometimes is admitting that you don't know or just being silent. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And the word responsibility used, I thought was really interesting too, because you used it in the time context. So you in, you said in the long run, one has to be concerned about responsibility. And I think that's something that we'll see in this dialogue uh, when they start to move from a short-term perspective to a longer-term perspective. So maybe something that might seem courageous at the moment in the long run is actually foolish. And I think that's the key message of this dialogue is that we need to think long-term effects of what we're doing. And maybe courage is used to demonstrate that. I like the way too that you said Virtue is like a system of thinking. So maybe it's not a form in itself, but it's the way we combine 
knowledge. It's a particular combination of knowledge, maybe. Uh, and Socrates used the term harmonic uh, or harmony uh, in the previous section that we read. And so maybe there is a question of harmonizing knowledge, and maybe it's a, a particular harmony of knowledge that constitutes virtue. So something that we can explore, I think, as we work our way through this conclusion in which there's a lot of threads that are twisting and turning around here. I, I had to admit, I, I read this conclusion about six times before it finally struck me. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's some really good points there that we can pick up on that, that really do tie to this to the conclusion of this dialogue. So, Darren. Yeah, I, I I read this a few times too, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around all the various arguments and how they stick together. Um, but so I just want to make an make an observation about this section, which I think is interesting. It's one of these meta things that happen in the dialogues, which make them so like intellectually stimulating. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's interesting that you know this section begins with. Socrates either praising or flattering Protagoras for being so wonderful and having so much confidence in his knowledge and his abilities that you know he'll even he's even the first sophist ever to charge for this kind of thing and make you know and basically make a living off of this stuff. And so yeah, it's interesting that Protagoras is being described as having confidence. But I mean, Socrates is doing something sly here, right? Because <laughs> in in then raising a question, bringing the um, their discussion back to courage, you know, he's sort of suggesting, he's sort of raising the question whether Protagoras himself is virtuous because he's only saying Protagoras is confident, not that Protagoras is courageous. So, and he's now he's asking the question whether confidence is actually courageous. So it's, it's sort of asking whether Protagoras is really virtuous. Um, and I think Protagoras knows this because, or he senses it because at the end, at the very, very end, the last thing in the last thing he'll say, um, that, that section, he'll, he'll say like, he'll say this strange thing, like, I don't think I'm really a bad person or something <laughs> like that, which, you know, wouldn't be really something you say if you don't think, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you yourself is on the line. Um, so just uh, one extension of this observation too, I, and then I'll, uh, I'll wrap up. Um, yeah, so regarding what courage looks like in the kind of work they're doing now in, the, in doing philosophy, like we'll often see that what we've seen in previous sections of this dialogue many times, and also it comes up again this time, that Protagoras often defers to, like when he sort of gets stuck, he sort of says, well, that's what most people say. Or, you know, you know that's what he imagines most people will say. Um, and then Socrates, like repeatedly in this dialogue, he'll, he'll say something like, no, I'm not asking what most people will say. What do you really think? <laughs> what is it that you really think? Like, I don't care what this is poem or what this text or what this, you know, great thinker of the past says, you know, what Kant or whomever, or of course, Kant doesn't exist yet, but whatever. Like, Socrates wants to know you as a human being. What do you really think? And then he says at one point, I think last time, that this is how we actually test ideas. This is how we make sort of progress in this. Not like, you know, talking about poems and trying to interpret them where, you know, no one can ever agree or figure out what it really says because, you know, we can disagree forever. Socrates wants to put the, our, our, our lives at stake in a way. Like, it's it's about us, the human being. He thinks it's that important and urgent. Like, this is, this is the kind of work that matters to us. And so I think what, Protagor what we see Protagoras often doing is, like, he seems to lack courage to take a stance for himself. He just he's just happy to go along saying, you know, this is what this person said, or this is what a lot of people think, you know, and he'll leave it at that. Um, but of course, to put yourself at stake, to put your own views at stake requires courage. 
Um, and I think the dialogue doesn't make this connection explicit. But again, I think this is one of the many things that we often see in reading the drama and not just what is explicitly said, which is we're being shown that, you know, if Socrates is someone who has this surprising way of exhibiting what courage looks like in an intellectual realm, but sometimes maybe it's not having confidence and saying you don't know things and admitting you're wrong. Um, Protagoras is an exhibition, you know, of someone who <laughs> only seems to have courage and... Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll just wrap up. Th- wrap up there. Yeah, and that's an interesting connection I hadn't thought about before. Whether Socrates is questioning Protagoras's confidence, and therefore courage, and courage maybe to admit what he doesn't know, because Protagoras holds to know a lot of things, uh, and is in fact the first person to charge for for such things. Uh, so that's a really interesting connection I hadn't thought about that. But certainly at the end, he the dialogue ends with Protagoras turns the compliments back to Socrates. And I say that I would be not surprised if you gain among men high repute for wisdom, as if as if Protagoras is the one who is qualified <laughs> to determine that. And, he's, and then Protagoras goes on to say, we will examine these things later, whenever you wish. Now it is time to turn our attention elsewhere. <laughs> so he he kind of deflects and he, he kind of changes the subject because I think he it seems that he's on the ropes yeah. um, with that. And um and and then you mentioned too when he defers to what others say, there's that interesting thread throughout this dialogue where Protagoras several times says the masses just sing the tune of their leader, and so he says, "Do we really need to ask what the ma- what the masses think?" Uh, and yet he, as you said, he kind of defers to those. So uh, we'll, and we'll see that in the next part of this reading about courage. So yeah, James, can I just make a add a quick point to yeah. what he said? So I think um. Yeah, the thing I wanted to say at the end, I'm trying to get my thoughts together, is that I guess uh, the the implicit idea here then is that um, to do philosophy requires courage itself. Like to really do philosophy, I guess in the in the in the in the Socratic manner, where it matters for our lives, where it might actually, where it might have a chance of educating our virtues, requires sort of putting ourselves at stake and not just referring to ideas in the abstract, but what ourselves really think. So this this idea that philosophy itself requires a certain kind of courage, which might not look like, which might not be a conventional appearance of what courage uh, is like. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm coming to believe that myself too, you know, that that admitting that you don't know requires more courage than demonstrating what you do know, I guess. And that's maybe why the Oracle at Delphi said that Socrates was the wisest person alive, for he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. Um, so, yeah, interesting point about that. So thanks. And um, yeah, we'll go to Steve. I'll uh, take a, a shot at being uh, Protagoras' apologist and, uh, you know, bring up a few points counter to uh, Darren's argument. Sure. So first off, uh, you know, that, you know, the way the dialogue has started, I think it's a very, you know, a positive term that they're going to explore together. And, you know, in a dialogue, you need to have different points of views and the whole idea of when you know two people walking together they can you know discover more together but i think that again this is uh the idea that the sophists are bad you know air quotes is like a propaganda of plato for his own purposes you know first off i think too that protagoras is not the first sophist to charge anybody he's the first you know socrates compliments him for having the courage to openly say that he does it so I'm going to argue that Protagoras is showing his his uh, courage in many ways here. You know, he's open about charging. And again, it's very important, I think, to have 
this idea of in context, the sophists were charging, but at that point in time, it was considered if you were charging somebody, you were a workman, you know, it was not considered something that the land owning elites would do. So again, from in our day and time, that would be every university professor is charging for, you know, teaching knowledge or making their living by doing this. So I think uh, instead of being non-courageous, I think it's quite the opposite. And also, again, the Protagoras is, is not considered to be a, a small thinker or a small uh, personage. He was uh, very well known and he uh, did have quite a bit of real actual work. And actually, uh, you know, one thing is Protagoras is ex uh, just reading a short uh, section here that Protagoras expresses agnosticism in the matter of religion. If gods exist, their nature can be considered so different from human nature that humans would not be able to fathom them. So in, you know, he's more courageous than Plato Socrates in, in questioning religion. And he uh, did have a lot of problems uh, in his life because of his uh, courage in expressing that. Thanks. And thanks for that. Uh, context actually that's interesting and and interesting especially too because the audience that Socrates and young Hippocrates are standing in front of is a bunch of sophists including Protagoras but others and so maybe this is really showing a range of skill among sophists uh, and Protagoras maybe is the most skilled um, so it's an interesting interesting perspective uh, on that yeah and and you know certainly Protagoras is shown with many good points in this dialogue. And I think it's a question of then maybe it's a process question. How do we go about processing inputs from people like Socrates, from people like Protagoras? And how do we go about assessing which ones are closer to the truth, which are, which ones are closer to the good to pick up on something I said in the introduction and that they'll reach in the conclusion, what's closer to the good? How do we weigh their opinions. Uh, and, and weighing is a very important part that Socrates brings in near the end of this uh, dialogue. So so thank you for that. I think that was really helpful context. Darren. Just want to respond to uh, what Steve said here. I think it might be helpful to actually see the, pro the dialogue, the Protagoras, in context of other dialogues on Sophists, like the two Hippias dialogues, which are amazing. And um, there's the Gorgias and there's others. And actually, if you compare them, you'll find that Protagoras is like put in a very positive light in this dialogue, I think. And there's ways in which Socrates is actually problematized in certain ways. For instance, we see Socrates himself being sort of overawed by Protagoras. He admits it and he has to collect himself. And then, you know, we at one point in the interpreting the Simonides poem section, Socrates says that, you know, he thought Protagoras had like a really like knockout argument and he needed, um, you know, he needed to like bide his time. Yeah. Um, or, or delay or something. So he, he makes up his own flowery speech, which is kind of amusing. So like, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't get the sense that Prologoras has been presented as all bad here, especially if you compare with the Hippias dialogues, because the, all, all these characters, they're not flat, right? In these dialogues, they all have their own personalities and they're all abilities or inabilities. And uh, Hippias is like an idiot sophist. Like he's like, even in this dialogue, like some of the most hilarious parts were like, whenever Hippias comes up, people just sort of brush him off and dismiss him. <laughs> so those are really amusing. Um, I don't know if people noticed. So clearly, like Hippias pretends like he's really smart, but like everyone like knows he's like a, a sort of a vain fool. 
So I guess, yeah, I guess my point is that like, if you compare across different dialogues on the sofas, you know, I think you'll find that Prologoris is not being sort of presented in like a very negative light. Pretty much all the characters get poked at in, in these dialogues, right? They all have their foibles. Even Socrates seems to, I think. I, I don't know if it has to be one or the other that like, you know, they're all they're either presenting a positive light or a bad light. I think there's a spectrum here. And I think Prologoris is presented on, actually, if you compare across dialogues on the, on the sort of more positive end. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too that Socrates does come off as being maybe more combative and maybe a little bit objectionable sometimes in this dialogue. And maybe that's deliberate. Maybe that's deliberate that Plato did that to show how one could deal with ideas expressed by somebody that we don't really like the form of expression, but maybe there's still ideas that need to be dealt with. And here Socrates has brought young Hippocrates to this audience of some of all of these great thinkers. And it'd be really interesting to be in that audience and to see how Hippocrates himself is taking in all of this scene. In fact, we don't know that from this. Uh, we, Hippocrates doesn't say what his thoughts are on all of this. One can imagine what it would be like to be Hippocrates, the young person who was really uh, drawn to this event by the presence of Protagoras and Protagoras's fame. It would be really interesting to see how Hippocrates' own thinking changes during this whole process uh, of this back and forth. So, um, yeah, really interesting thought. Can, can I just respond to one more thing that Steve yeah. said? First thing I'll say is that um, I think Protagoras has a lot of actually really great arguments for in the first uh, part of the dialogue. He gives reasons uh, why Socrates is wrong, that uh, virtue can't be taught. And I thought, I actually thought those arguments were pretty brilliant. So he's not like, He's not being shown to be an idiot in this dialogue at all, I think. I, I think he's one of the most brilliant characters actually across all, all of the Plato's dialogues. So Steve mentioned that Protagoras exhibits a lot of courage in some of the things he says and does about religion and so on. So just a couple of things on, about this. I think there might be a question, like in so many of the dialogues on the virtues, whether it's courage or temperance or whatever, that you know, someone can show... A virtue in a certain way um but is it actually good i guess that's always the question that sort of exercises plato and socrates because <laughs> yeah like it, it can show it can show itself up and it can look like it but if it's not actually good or towards the good then is it actually virtuous that's sort of a sort of a not naughty naughty a not <laughs> a naughty yeah. problem that comes up often and um so and also in the way that Protagoras does challenge cultural and social or religious ideas. I would say that we see this at work, actually, in this very dialogue, right? Um, in, in many places. And he even, you know, talks about how he he sometimes might be putting himself in danger or sophists are. But he doesn't do it in so- Socrates' way, where he Socrates can be quite blunt. Like at one point in part one, like when he says he doesn't think virtue can be taught, he was literally referring to people in the audience that, oh, look at these people, look at this side. Like he didn't have virtues. Like these people are literally in the audience. Like that is not, that is sort of a dangerous thing for Socrates to do. But Prologoras, when he questions, even when he seems to challenge things, he, he's always constantly flattering. Maybe people wish there weren't God so they can like do whatever they want, you know, and they, they don't have to feel guilty. So, you know, he'll flatter that sentiment. And he, he, like everything he says, I don't know. I, this is what I, my sense of the dialogue is that. So I think Steve is right that he does challenge things, but people are complicated, right? We have multiple, although, you know, we might believe in gods. We also wish there, maybe we wish there weren't so we wouldn't have to feel guilty. So like he, he's obviously very good at rhetoric and he, so he's very good at using that 
And of course, when you say something that seems challenging, it also makes you feel smart too. So I don't know. He's like, bri he's brilliant, right? He's brilliant doing this stuff. But to the extent he has courage and, and challenges people, it's at least very different than Socrates. So it might be worth reflecting on how they're different. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's do that. And certainly the uh, flattery, I guess, is an interesting angle. And at the end, Protagoras does flatter Socrates or tries to flatter Socrates, but maybe it comes as off as a backhanded flattery. So... And, and, you know, what you said about the complexity of people it brings us to the end of this discussion on courage, which I have on the screen and I can read momentarily. It uh, starts at 358C and they talk about what really motivates people. And I think it's the, the motivation maybe is the key that Socrates is is trying to get at here. So we'll, we'll see that uh, in a minute. But first, uh, Eva, your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, Darren, I, I did little research on the word virtue, trying to understand is virtue supposed to be something positive? And yes, the word virtue refers to a high moral thinking. So I think that brings in an open-ended understanding of virtue. So what I could just go ahead and call myself virtuous and just think or assume that I am being virtuous and I'm doing my best, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it will be uh, my option and my perspective. And a person who thinks they are virtuous might be looking really unvirtuous from another perspective. So while virtue is like a self thing, like the I person's decision, it's how it seems from outside, we need a group of people to really name it or label it as like the virtues. So it has both individual and a group dynamic, I guess. Thanks, James. That's a fascinating way of putting it, it both individual and group, because I guess, and maybe I said this before, but you know, we are now judging each other a lot or societies are judging each other a lot and polarizing and a lot of people may think that they're virtuous and proclaim their virtue but others see them as not virtuous so somehow we have to um, reconcile these perceptions of each other and so virtue i think what you're saying requires at least two uh, or at least a consensus of two to create virtue it's not a single thing you know yeah, I, I really like that. That's that's actually very good. So thanks, thanks for that perspective, because I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but I think it's very helpful to this dialogue. So I will go ahead maybe and read the conclusion of the courage part. And this is after there has been a digression. So, But I thought it would be easier for us to maybe understand what they're saying about courage to take out that digression by just going ahead to the ending part of that discussion. And this begins at 358C. So by this point, they have digressed now to discussing pleasure versus pain. So they started off by talking about courage. Then they talked about confidence as, a, as an element of courage. And then they digressed to pleasure versus pain. And now they're coming back to courage. So this is at 358C. Then if the pleasant is the good, no one who knows or believes there is something else better than what he is doing, something possible will go on doing what he had been doing when he could be doing what is better. 
To give in to oneself is nothing other than ignorance, and to control oneself is nothing other than wisdom. They all agreed. So here Socrates is recounting this um, audience in front of the sophist and uh, young Hippocrates. So they all agreed, he says. So Socrates went on, well then, do you say that ignorance is to have a false belief and to be deceived about matters of importance? They all agreed on this. Now, no one goes willingly toward the bad or what he believes to be bad. Neither is it in human nature, so it seems, to want to go toward what one believes to be bad instead of to the good. And when he is forced to choose between one of two bad things, no one will choose the greater if he is able to choose the lesser. They all agreed with that too. Well then, is there something you call dread or fear? And I address this to you, Prodicus. I say that whether you call it fear or dread, it is an expectation of something bad. Protagoras and Hippias thought that this was true of both dread and fear, but Prodicus thought it applied to dread, but not to fear. Well, it really does not matter, Prodicus. This is the point. If what I have said up to now is true, then would anyone be willing to go toward what he dreads when he can go toward what he does not? Or is this impossible from what we have agreed? For it was agreed that what one fears one holds to be bad, no one goes toward those things which he holds to be bad or chooses those things willingly. They all agreed. Well, Prodicus and Hippias, with this established, let Protagoras defend for us the truth of his first answer. I don't mean his very first answer, for then he said that while there are five parts of virtue, none is like any other, but each one has its own unique power or function. I'm not talking about this now, but about what he said later. For later, he said that four of them are very similar to each other, but one differs very much from the others, namely courage. And he said that I would know this by the following evidence. You will find, Socrates, many people who are extremely impious, unjust, intemperate, and ignorant, and yet exceptionally courageous. By this you will recognize that courage differs very much from all the other parts of virtue. So I was very surprised at his answer then, and even more so now, that I've gone over these things with you. I asked him then if he said that the courageous were confident, and he said, yes, and ready for action too. Do you remember giving this answer? He said he did. Well then, tell us, for what actions are the courageous ready? The same actions as the cowardly? No. Different actions? Yes. Do the cowardly go forward to things which inspire confidence, and the courageous toward things to be feared? So it is said by most people. Right, but I'm not asking that. Rather, what do you say the courageous go boldly toward? Toward things to be feared, believing them to be fearsome, or towards things not to be feared? But what you have just said, the former is impossible. Right again. So if our demonstration has been correct, then no one goes toward the things he considers to be fearsome, since not to be in control of oneself was found to be ignorance. He agreed. But all people, both the courageous and the cowardly, go toward that about which they are confident. Both the cowardly and the courageous go toward the same things. But Socrates, what the cowardly go toward is completely opposite to what the courageous go toward. For example, the courageous are willing to go to war, but the cowardly are not. Is going to war honorable or is it disgraceful? Honorable? Then if it is honorable, as we have agreed before, it is also good, for we agreed that all honorable actions were good. Very true, and I have always believed this. And rightly. But who would you say are not willing to go to war, war being honorable and good? The cowardly. If a thing is noble and good, is it also pleasant? This was definitely agreed upon. So the cowardly, with full knowledge, are not willing to go toward the more honorable, the better, and more pleasant. If we agree to that, we will undermine what we agreed on earlier. What about the courageous man? Does he go toward the more honorable, the better, and more pleasant? We must agree to that. 
So generally, when the courageous fear, their fear is not disgraceful. Nor when they are confident, is their confidence disgraceful? True. If not disgraceful, is it honorable? He agreed. If honorable, then also good? Yes. Whereas the fear and confidence of the cowardly, the foolhardy, and madmen are disgraceful? He agreed. Is their confidence disgraceful and bad for any reason other than ignorance and stupidity? No, it isn't. Now then, that through which cowardly people are cowardly, do you call it cowardice or courage? Cowardice. And aren't cowards shown to be so through their ignorance of what is to be feared? Absolutely. So they are cowards because of that ignorance? He agreed. You agree that it is through cowardice that they are cowards? He said he did. So can we conclude that cowardice is ignorance of what is and is not to be feared? He nodded. Now courage is the opposite of cowardice. He said yes. So then, wisdom about what is and is not to be feared is the opposite of this ignorance. He nodded again. And this ignorance is cowardice? He nodded again very reluctantly. So the wisdom about what is and is not to be feared is courage and is the opposite of this ignorance? He would not even nod at this. He remained silent. So that's kind of the conclusion of the discussion about courage and cowardice involving confidence. And it seems that Socrates has brought it to a conclusion that really it either is a function, either courage or cowardice, however, whatever name we apply to it, is really a consequence of knowledge. And what do we think about that? Is it really fundamentally knowledge that we're talking about here, rather than some thing called courage, which has some sort of power on its own? In other words, if somebody if somebody is uncertain about whether to do something, is it courage that makes them certain? Like, is there a thing called courage with its own power that can cause somebody to do something which they were otherwise uncertain about? Or is it knowledge that causes them to act? I think maybe here there's maybe Socrates is trying to make some extension then from courage to what are held to be the other parts of virtue. And maybe it's all knowledge. Darren. Yeah, I found this uh, last section or this part three to be quite difficult. And I think what you read sort of gave it a taste of uh, my, uh, why that might be. Uh, there's, so, there's just a lot of like dense argumentation here and, you know, it's all connected. So <laughs> it's hard to keep track of everything. So, so yeah, regarding the question of knowledge and whether it's um, like, I, I, I don't really exactly know what's going on here, but I think it might be helpful to think about what kind of knowledge we're talking about and knowledge what. I think there might be different sorts that are being suggested. And um, the thing that jumped out at me was um, any section here. So yeah, at back at um, 354B to 355, when there are, so this comes goes back to the discussion of um, pleasure and pain and whether, you know, that's the only good thing in life, whether that's the good. Socrates constantly asked, like asked like four or five times in a row here, whether Protagoras might have some other view of what good is like he repeatedly asked this and 
So the suggestion, I feel like Plato is flagging something here. And of course, each time Protagoras says, no, it's all, it's all just, you know, pleasure and pain. That's all that, that's all that ultimately matters. But I think that, especially in the way that so Socrates raises this question, he often, he, he says here in this section, I'll just read this one example out loud here. Even now, it is still possible to withdraw like his view, if you're able to say that the good is anything other than pleasure or that the bad is anything other than pain, or is it enough for you to live life pleasantly without pain? So the way he puts the question, right, is that repeatedly here is, are you able to say that the good is anything other than pleasure or pain? And Protagoras, of course, says no. Um, but this idea of whether you're able to say the good is anything else like this evokes the ideas from other dialogues right if for you know people who are more familiar with the other ones where there is more direct discussion of the good and what this mysterious thing the good is itself that you know uh james also helped us with at the beginning at the very beginning of this uh conversation when he talked about the republic and it's not something that's like explicitly sayable even though supposedly it um <laughs> it sort of governs our thinking and so, yeah, the, the, this idea of like what we have to know. I, I, so anyway, I just want to say that maybe it is maybe the knowledge is a that matters for virtue is this knowledge of a very it is knowledge, but it's not knowledge like an apple is red or whatever. It's like something um, special and which is knowledge of the good. And I think that's what's being flagged here. Of course, it's not developed at all in this dialogue, but like it's I don't know. I feel like the section that I that I just brought up here, I feel like it, it's really flagging. Mm. <laughs> that this is what Socrates is at least trying to like get us to have a sense of. Mm. Yeah. For sure. I, I, I do have a reading actually from that section from 353C to 355E that I, I'll do next. And it really does talk about knowledge of the good. And that's something where we, maybe we can get into understanding what the good is. Virtue does definitely seem to be something good, as Eva pointed out, you know, that, that it has that positive connotation to it. But the question is whether virtue itself has any power over us, or is the power over us really in us, in, in our knowledge of the good? And I think that's what Socrates is coming to the conclusion, is that if virtue is a separate thing, uh, having powers of, it own, of its own, or having parts, and each part has powers of, it own, of its own, and somehow these parts tie to the whole, then that means that we aren't able to govern ourselves. Uh, ultimately, if we don't have virtue, we're ungovernable. And he, he kind of talks, he, he talks about that. We'll see that in, in the next reading. Uh, so what is it that really drives us? Is it some outside force called virtue? If we are lucky enough to possess it, we're good. If we're not lucky enough to possess it or not lucky enough to have teachers like Protagoras, then we may be bad. I think Socrates is saying that humanity is more powerful than that. Uh, and I find that actually an uplift, uplifting message from this. It, it's a powerful message, I think. So, um, but we'll see that coming to the conclusion. I just, um, you know, I, I point to two things in that reading that I just did. Socrates uses the word reason uh, and it relates maybe to what he says in the Republic about the soul being divided into three parts where reason mediates uh, spirit and appetite. And so maybe it's it's a question of reason. Uh, virtue is a question of reason, finding finding the reason to be good. 
And I just actually noticed this word disgraceful, which appears several times in what I just read. And I, it just occurred to me that Socrates, uh, or no, sorry, it was Protagoras who brought in earlier uh, in his story about Epimetheus and Prometheus, which we'll see at the end, uh, Socrates turns back to. But in that story, he said that humanity was endowed with shame and justice, a sense of shame and justice. And so here maybe we're questioning whether shame really has power over people like virtue. So maybe shame is kind of the opposite of virtue. Uh, and so is, is shame something that really drives us or is it something else that drives us? So the word disgraceful, I think really calls into mind uh, that power of shame or that, that uh, attribute of shame that we're supposed to um, have. So, so thanks for those. Um, Steve, I, I saw your hand up. Did you, Want to say anything or? Uh, I'll try and be brief. Just, uh, you know, I think the the idea of courage uh, being, you know, related to knowledge and, you know, the biggest aspects I think we have to look at is the uh, evolutionary adapting. You know, most of where these cases of courage are, are cited are things where, you know, you're involved in some sort of basically tribal rivalry that's, you know, extended to nations, you know, and it's something that evolved as a, you know, as a, uh, a, a adaptation that, uh, you know, the, the survival of the tribe related to the uh, the courage. And then there's also the, the cultural reinforcement of those. So, you know, the shame and disgrace and dishonor, all of those are, are uh, cultural, uh, you know, let's say if the evolutionary or hardwiring, these might be softwired software, uh, you know, uh, adaptions in order to keep the cohesion of the society. So it's not necessarily an idea of knowledge that's driving, you know, if you, you a soldier on the front lines, you know, what's going to determine whether they're courageous, not necessarily their knowledge about, you know, any grand theme, it's more likely to be their uh, biological and cultural uh, urges, per se, uh, and lack of a better word, to uh, to do that. What is considered the courageous thing, and also what is biologically courageous for the for the group, is more of an emphasis of it on what they're going to do than uh, knowledge, per se, or virtue. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a good connection, and it reminds us of what we talked about. I think maybe starting in the first episode is whether virtue is something societally based or based on uh, based on families and it, whether it's therefore something that's variable over time and therefore not a form. Um, and I think Socrates concludes it's not a form, uh, but how variable it is, is I guess in question. So yeah, you that that's a really good, interesting connection about shame being something that is part of our social adaptation, perhaps, and keep societies together. Um, but then maybe it leads to that tyranny of convention that Socrates talked about earlier, that, you know, if, if it's taken too far and the sense of shame is exploited too much, then people are acting from that and not thinking about other ways that they could act. So uh, that's an interesting connection. And certainly it was Protagoras who said earlier that Zeus kept the knowledge of political wisdom to himself. For some reason, he doesn't say why Zeus kept that to himself, but shame, a sense of shame and justice were 
brought upon us so that we would keep our societies together uh, and and that it wasn't something else that we keep our societies together. So I don't know why Zeus kept this knowledge to himself. If he had the knowledge, why didn't he share it? But uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's an important point to make. Um, I have another reading here if uh, if we're ready, and this this ties into the the subject of knowledge. This is, as I mentioned before, from three fifty one C to three fifty three A, and this is where they sort of really start to play on the theme of knowledge. So Socrates is now questioning pleasure versus pain. This is a little bit earlier than what I read before. It says, so then, to live pleasantly is good and unpleasantly bad? Yes, so long as he lived having taken pleasure in honorable things. What, Protagoras? Surely you don't, like most people, call some pleasant things bad and some painful things good? I mean, isn't a pleasant thing good just insofar as it is pleasant? That is, if it results in nothing other than pleasure, and on the other hand, aren't painful things bad in the same way, just insofar as they are painful? I don't know, Socrates, if I should answer as simply as you put the question that everything pleasant is good and everything painful is bad. It seems to me to be safer to respond, not merely with my present answer in mind, but from the point of view of my life overall, that on the one hand, there are pleasurable things which are not good, and on the other hand, there are painful things which are not bad, but some which are, and a third class, which is neutral, neither bad nor good. You call pleasant things those which partake of pleasure or produce pleasure? Certainly. So my question is this, just insofar as things are pleasurable, are they good? I'm asking whether pleasure itself is not a good. Just as you always say, Socrates, let us inquire into this matter, and if your claim seems reasonable and it is established that pleasure and the good are the same, then we will come to agreement. Otherwise, we will disagree. Do you wish to lead this inquiry, or shall I? It is fitting for you to lead, for it is you who brought up the idea. All right, will this help to make it clear? When someone evaluates a man's health or other functions of the body through his appearance, he looks at the face and extremities and might say, show me your chest and back too, so that I can make a better examination. That's the kind of investigation I want to make. Having seen how you stand on the good and the pleasant, I need to say something like this to you. Come now, Protagoras, and reveal this about your mind. What do you think about knowledge? Do you go along with the majority or not? Most people think this way about it, that it is not a powerful thing, neither a leader nor a ruler. They do not think of it in that way at all, but rather in this way. While knowledge is often present in a man, what rules him is not knowledge, but rather anything else. Sometimes anger, sometimes pleasure, sometimes pain, at other times love, often fear. They think of this knowledge as being utterly dragged around by all these other things as if it were, as if it were a slave. Now, does the matter seem like that to you, or does it seem to you that knowledge is a fine thing capable of ruling a person? And if someone were to know what is good and bad, then he would not be forced by anything to act otherwise than as knowledge dictates, and intelligence would be sufficient to save a person. Not only does it seem just as you say, Socrates, but further, it would be shameful indeed for me above all people to say that wisdom and knowledge are anything but the most powerful forces in human activity. Right you are. You realize that most people aren't going to be convinced by us. They maintain that most people are unwilling to do what is best, even though they know what it is and are able to do it. And when I have asked them the reason for this, they say that those who act that way do so because they are overcome by pleasure or pain or are being ruled by one of the things I referred to just now. I think people say a lot of other things erroneously too, Socrates. 
come with me then and let's try to persuade people and to teach them what it what is this experience which they call being overcome by pleasure because of which they fail to do the best thing when they know what it is or perhaps if we told them what they were saying isn't true but is demonstrably false they would ask us protagoras and socrates if this is not the experience of being overcome by pleasure but something other than that what do you two say it is tell us Socrates, why is it necessary for us to investigate the opinion of ordinary people who will say whatever occurs to them? That's the end of that part of the reading, I think, which brings in a number of things that we've already talked about in terms of Protagoras's uh, view of the average person, I guess, right there at the end, which makes a number of references to throughout the dialogue. And again, he called into attention uh, the word shame or shameful. He said, it would be shameful indeed for me above all people to say that wisdom and knowledge are anything but the most powerful forces in human activity. So that's an interesting um, comparison because on the one hand, he's saying knowledge is the most powerful. And then on the other hand, he's saying shame, I'm prevented by shame from saying anything otherwise. So he's giving shame as a reason but he's also saying knowledge is the highest thing. So what is he really saying is what's his real motivation, I guess, is maybe what, uh, maybe what Socrates is trying to call to attention with highlighting these words. And ultimately, if we are to act, is our action best based on knowledge or is it best based on uh, some constraint of virtue. If, if if somebody teaches us virtue, is that sufficient to constrain us? Is that sufficient to, to save us from the bad? So there's the, the part where Socrates tries to highlight, you know, that people don't maybe place enough emphasis on knowledge, that they think that knowledge is, is there, knowledge gets in the way of what we want to do, I think is what he says often. Uh, and so that's that part where he says they think they think of his knowledge as being utterly dragged around by all those other things as if it were a slave. So because knowledge is so susceptible to be overridden by our appetites and by our spirit and reason loses its capacity sometimes, he's saying this is the reason why we need virtue, because reason is sometimes just doesn't work. And so virtue would come in here and save us from the bad by by filling in the gap when reason is is uh, missing in action. Uh, Eva and then Darren. Yeah, James, I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> yeah. uh, that that's a tough one, but I'm curious to maybe understand if we think virtue is taught. What is the motivation of the teacher? I don't think, I don't believe virtue can be taught. It's a personal and unique outcome of life experiences. And I think virtue is unique to each person. But if we want to think as like, okay, let's raise this virtuous generation or let's raise virtuous people, uh, I, I would want to just question what is the motivation of this person who thinks they are teaching virtue, what is the advantage 
and uh, who is giving them that authority? Because uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, if, if you were able to see the TikTok and American Congress discussions. It seems like uh, we would just think like US Congress people would be logical, they would be uh, all, I, I would want to think like they would be virtuous. So they all they all were connected and they have their own opinion, all the same opinion on one thing. Uh, yeah, I don't think this is a an easy question to ask. Very true. I, I think too, that's what maybe Socrates was trying to warn Hippocrates about at the beginning. Hippocrates runs into Socrates' house. Socrates isn't really even out of bed yet. And Hippocrates says, I'm really anxious to see this teacher. And Socrates says, well, beware. If you're going to consume his product and pay him money for it, then be a knowledgeable consumer. So I think he's he's saying being a knowledgeable consumer of knowledge. And when you don't have the knowledge yourself, look to people who care about you for their advice. Uh, so yeah, because as you're right, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to understand what the motivations are. Sometimes it's money. And maybe there's Socrates is making maybe a bit of an unfair implication here that Protagoras is doing this just for money. Although Protagoras is said to have charged the highest fee of anybody else. So money certainly seems to be some sort of a motivation, but is he more motivated by money than anything else? And then Steve mentioned earlier, you know, every university professor is potentially a sophist, I guess, but, you know, it, we have to make a living. And so, you know, I think they're not necessarily the best paid people in the world. And a lot of them do it really for love of knowledge. Um, so, but it, it's hard to tell the difference, like what, what is really motivating them. So being a knowledgeable consumer seems to be the key. And it could be power too, yeah. not related too much with the money. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And, and that's why Socrates, again, at the beginning said, when you consume a teaching, it affects your soul and you can't undo it. It's not like, it's not like food, you buy food in the store, he said, uh, you can take it home and inspect it. And if it's not good, you can discard it before you consume it. With teachings like things about virtue, it sits in your soul. Once it's in there, you don't get rid of it. It's it's in there. And then you have to then judge for yourself. And maybe then it starts to uh, form a life of its own if, if you don't continually seek to learn and question. Uh, and if you if you just consume it, from one person and you think that, yeah, that person's great. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. That's really what virtue is. Then, as you say, that could lead to incredible power, I think. Yeah. And that's, that's a danger. I think that's clearly a danger. They just talking about this, the soul, once it absorbs something, it can't unabsorb it. The only way it can override that learning is to learn something else. So, and use reason. So the question here in this section that I just read is, is reason sometimes, does reason sometimes fail? It is are we faulty to start off with that our reason sometimes fails or if our reason fails is it because we let it fail uh, we don't we let our guard down maybe and that's what he's maybe calling into question I, I like that so so thank you for that uh, and Darren you're in yeah sorry I I, I was uh <laughs> reaching for the lower hand button rather than the unmute okay um so um 
just a couple of things. Um, I noticed so in the start of this passage here, where um at 351E, uh, where Protagoras says, just as you always say, Socrates, let us inquire into this matter. And if your claim seems reasonable and it is established that pleasure and the good are the same, then we will come to agreement. Otherwise, we will disagree. I so this is a, actually, I think it's a strange shift here. I think it might be one of those things that um when Socrates at the very end of this dialogue sort of says that we have to go go through everything all over again. Um, may, maybe this is one of the things we're supposed to sort of catch because it's, it's a strange shift because like I I'm pretty sure up to now there were Socrates was talking about uh pleasure as being a good. And here Prologorus changes the question to whether the pleasure and the good are the same, which is a very different thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's just identifying them very closely. And so of course we see later on that, you know, if you say that good is pleasure, then you can sort of create all sorts of um funny, funny business by just replacing replacing the words in various sentences, replacing the word good with pleasure or pleasure with good. And then you end up with all, all sorts of weird um consequences in a lot of areas. So I, I feel like that shift is weird. So maybe that I just that's just one observation. Um the other thing is uh just respond to what you were saying, James. But that stuff on like uh shame talks about later. He says uh yeah whether Protagoras is running into sort of uh knots. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I actually think that's what's sort of happening. That Protagoras is sort of, and he even sort of has to put him some daylight between himself and uh, the masses, because usually he's flattering the masses, mm -hmm. especially the Athenians and the people in the audience. But here he's like, oh, you know, the, the people say wrong things all the time, <laughs> which would seem kind of like uncharacteristic. But like my sense is that, like I I, I acknowledge, like we we might interpret this in different ways, but um, like maybe this is um, maybe this is like um his own true genuine deeper view, which, you know, could also be true. But I feel like what's happening here is that, you know, Socrates has led him to this train of thought where he has to acknowledge like that knowledge is, you know, the most powerful thing or whatever. And, you know, and he says, but Socrates is like, but the masses don't think this. And then, you know, Protagoras, you know, sort of has to be dragged along here. He's sort of being dragged along too. And um, so like the, the sense I get from this is like this drama, this dialogue is sort of unique. Um, they're like Socrates is trying very hard <laughs> and I feel like and I feel like it's because maybe Prologoras is such a great interlocutor you know and, and the dialogue is actually showing that um, so contrary to maybe what Steve was saying earlier and um, and Socrates is like trying really hard to find like certain cracks in the armor and he does find them <laughs> and um, and it's hard for them to but it's hard for him to find them and he has to go in these digressions right exactly and, and he has you, these you and i both had to read this multiple times to figure yes. it out <laughs> exactly and these yeah. very long digressions and these very difficult arguments and it seems like at times like even Protagoras wins the argument and so, so socrates changes the changes the argument like he goes in a different direction and but i think he is sort of successful in the end though socrates and after all this effort and on on their part and also on our part reading it um <laughs> Uh, but ultimately, like Prologoras at the very end, that's something he hasn't really done for the rest of the dialogue. He, he admits that there's an open question and that they should keep exploring. And so after all that effort, we finally like find a little crack where I think that's what Socrates wants um, people, because I think that's I think Plato and Socrates think that's what like is the is the best thing for us to, you know, have 
to enter a philosophical life where we're searching for these truths, mm -hmm. not necessarily being like just taught them as in being we're being Im imbibing truths or whatever. And I think he finally manages to get, <laughs> after all, a lot of effort, Podogorsi to get to that point where the life that is being led is like a philosophical life where you're asking and raising the questions, the problems, and not just like, you know, giving speeches about what you, what you know, and all that. Um, and that's a good tie in maybe to the Mino where Socrates says, seek to question and learn. And, and that's, I mean, that was a, a dialogue and knowledge as well, which I think maybe, maybe is the upshot of this is to keep our reason functioning. We have to, continue questioning and learning otherwise our reason stops functioning yeah and it, like and it's like yeah we have to arrive at a place where there's kind of openness yeah. to a problem that you know maybe we don't know what virtue is yeah. but like it's a word and it's you know it's a sort of um a thing that seems to be real in that we <laughs> we seem to think with this idea um you know, even even if even if it's across cultures, it's different. You know, it seems to be as as Steve has brought mm -hmm. up. It seems it's still something we like. It's interesting that it is a concept that seems to exist across all cultures. I mm -hmm. feel like so. I don't know. Yeah, just uh, mm -hmm. I just want to sort of get a present an idea of what might be happening here in this mm -hmm. dialogue. Interesting. Yeah, and and you you know mentioned whether pleasure is the good maybe at one time, but is it good at all times? And that gets us into the time dimension of this, which I set out in the next reading. So I'll get to that shortly. I just, uh, Fernando, I saw your hand up and didn't know if you would like to uh, contribute a thought or you're on mute. You're okay. All right. Um, well, if, if you have any points, Fernando, by all means, uh, contribute. And uh, let me just go on then to read this part here from 353c to 355e and this is where socrates is talking about weighing knowledge of cause and effect of good and bad over time and so judging whether a thing is good is not something that we do necessarily immediately but it's something that we do over time and this weighing comes into question uh, or or comes into play. Uh, and it really does recall what uh, Socrates has said in other dialogues, including um, the Philebus, which we talked about before this dialogue, and a number of other dialogues. And we find in this section, actually, um, near the end, Socrates talks about uh, even and odd numbers again. And it's a curious reference again, uh, but I think really we need to at some point address why Socrates in multiple dialogues keeps bringing up the difference between even and odd. Um, so let me just go ahead and, and read this section here. So starting at 355, uh, 353C. Going back then, if they should ask us, we have been speaking of being overcome by pleasure. What do you say this is? I would reply to them this way. Listen, Protagoras and I will try to explain it to you. Do you hold, gentlemen, that this happens to you in circumstances like these? You are often overcome by pleasant things like food and drink and sex, or do you do these things all the while knowing they are ruinous? They would say yes. Then you and I would ask them again, in what sense do you call these things ruinous? Is it that each of them is pleasant in itself and produces immediate pleasure, or is it that later they bring about diseases and poverty and many other things of that sort? Or even if it doesn't bring about these things later, but gives only enjoyment, would it still be a bad thing? just because it gives enjoyment in whatever way. 
Can we suppose then, Protagoras, that they would make any other answer than that bad things are bad, not because they bring about immediate pleasure, but rather because of what happens later, disease and things like that? I think that is how most people would answer. And in bringing about diseases and poverty, do they bring about pain? I think they would agree. Yes. Does it not seem to you, my good people, as Protagoras and I maintain, that these things are bad on account of nothing other than the fact that they result in pain and deprive us of other pleasures? Would they agree? Protagoras concurred. Then again, suppose we were to ask them the opposite question. You who say that some painful things are good, do you not say that such things as athletics and military training and treatments by doctors, such as cautery, surgery, medicines, and starvation diet, are good things even though painful? Would they say so? Yes. Would you call these things good for the reason that they bring about intense pain and suffering, or because they ultimately bring about health and good condition of bodies and preservation of cities and power over others and wealth? Would they agree? Yes. These things are good only because they result in pleasure and in the relief and avoidance of pain. Or do you have some other criterion of view, other than pleasure and pain, on the basis of which you would call these things good? They say no, I think. And I would agree with you. So then you pursue pleasure as being good and avoid pain as bad? Yes. So this you regard as bad. Pain and pleasure you regard as good since you call the very enjoying of something bad whenever it deprives us of greater pleasures than it itself provides, or brings about greater pains than the very pleasures inherent in it. But if you call the very enjoying of something bad for some other reason, and with some other criterion in view than the one I have suggested, you could tell us what it is, but you won't be able to. I don't think they'll be able to either. And likewise, concerning the actual state of being in pain, do you call the actual condition of being in pain good, whether it relieves pains greater than the ones it contains or brings about greater pleasures than its attendant pains? Now, if you are using some other criterion than the one I have suggested, when you call the very condition of being pain good, you can tell us what it is, but you won't be able to. Truly spoken. Now again, gentlemen, if you ask me, why are you going on so much about this and in so much detail? I would reply, forgive me. First, it is not easy to show what it is that you call being overcome by pleasure. And then it is upon this very point that all the arguments rest. But even now, it is still possible to withdraw if you are able to say that the good is anything other than pleasure or that the bad is anything other than pain. Or is it enough for you to live life pleasantly without pain? If it is enough and you are not able to say anything else than that the good and the bad are that which result in pleasure and pain, listen to this. For I say to you, that if this is so, your position would become absurd when you say that frequently a man, knowing the bad to be bad, nevertheless does that very thing when he is able not to do it, having been driven and overwhelmed by pleasure. And again, when you say that a man, knowing the good, is not willing to do it on account of immediate pleasure, having been overcome by it. Just how absurd this is will become very clear if we do not use so many names at the same time. Pleasant and painful, good and bad, but since those turned out to be only two things, let us instead call them by two names. First, good and bad, and then later, pleasant and painful. On that basis, then, let us say that a man knowing bad things to be bad does them all the same. If then someone asks us why, having been overcome, we shall reply. By what, he will ask us. We are no longer able to say by pleasure, for it has taken on its other name, the good, instead of pleasure. So we will say in reply that he is overcome. By what, he will ask. By the good, we will say, for heaven's sakes. If by chance the questioner is rude, he might burst out laughing and say, what you're saying is ridiculous. Someone does what is bad, knowing that it is bad, when it is not necessary to do it, having been overcome by the good. So, he will say, 
within yourself, does the good outweigh the bad? We will clearly say in reply that it does not. For if it did, the person who we say is overcome by pleasure would not have made any mistake. In virtue of what, you might say, does the good outweigh the bad or the bad the good? Only in that one is greater and one is smaller or more and less. So I'll end the reading of that part there. There's a number of concepts in there which you know, hinge on this idea of waiting. Uh, I like that question. In virtue of what does the good outweigh the bad or the bad the good? And Socrates concludes that it's in knowing what is greater and what is uh, smaller or more and less. More good than bad, more bad than good. So as I said in the, in the introduction, is it possible to know the good wholly, like to, to know everything that's good, the good itself? And recalling what Socrates said about the good, uh, the form of the good in the Republic, the form of the good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. So maybe the good by that nature cannot itself be known because it gives us the power to know. So if we don't know the absolute good itself, if there's if there's no form of virtue which leads us to the absolute, or which takes us definitely to the absolute good, then is it really a question of weighing probabilities and understanding which lead to the greater good and which avoid the greater bad. Uh, so reducing the bad to a minimum and maximizing the good. And here this waiting is not done at one particular moment. You know, there's the, the talk about immediate uh, and later. Um, yeah, it produces immediate pleasure, or is it that later they bring about diseases and poverty and many other things of that sort? So we don't have to, we don't look at just what's good at the moment, because maybe that's how we become overcome by by pleasure, is thinking, well, that's great, let's just do it. But we don't use our reason then, and our reason necessarily invokes time to understand how these things are going to turn out, because we don't know what the absolute good is, so we don't know absolutely how things are going to turn out, even if they seem good at the moment. We have to think through time, and thinking through time involves this waiting and so in our own experience, I wonder whether we think that's true. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of relate to that personally. I think that's really true. When I make mistakes, it tends to be when I take short-term thinking and I don't think through the consequences fully and I fail to account for how others will react uh, to what I do or to some of the possible outcomes of what I do. So I might just focus on a few good outcomes, and I might not see the other possible outcomes. And those can come to to be. And if they come to be, and I haven't thought about them, then am I driving myself towards the good? Or am I? is my reason failing in that case, if I become overwhelmed by what we think is the good? So, Eva, your thoughts? Yeah, I think your example helped because... I believe it might be an easier discussion if we talked in the perspective of the focus or the goal. So if your goal is to be healthier and you know that you're convinced that you need an operation, so you one might appreciate that suffering or pain. It's really, I think the focus determines that 
And speaking about virtue, virtuous people, or let's say virtue-oriented people, they do not look for the daily pleasure or momentarily pleasure. They have a goal. And that goal is usually a long-term goal. I say, the more you focused on the goal and use your focus and see the motivation as like a, a path, then suffering's definition change, changes. It looks like you need to go through stuff that's not suffering anymore. That might be considered like the steps. Yeah, I think the higher person gets with the goals, focusing on the goals, all these definitions shift in a way that uh, they could even be opposite. But if you are just like a person just living the day or the week, you just work and order pizza and pizza and beer dinner on Friday, and that's like your uh, weekly pleasure, then yeah, there is suffering. And like, why would you suffer? Because like that was, you worked for a week and you deserve a good weekend with uh, what you can reach at that time. Yeah, did, did I make this more complicated? <laughs> no, by by all means, I, I really like that, that suffering's definition changes. I, I really like that. With, that. with that goal in mind, I think that's a great perspective that really helps me to understand this section as well, that what we might see initially as pain, it, we're just defining it incorrectly. And if we take the long view, what seemed like pain at the moment really becomes the pleasure of being better later on, I guess. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's essential. And not to try to, not to fall into that sort of convention or tyranny of convention, just doing the same thing always, just because it provides that momentary the relief from something that's really requires a longer term uh, view. So yeah, thank you. It was really good. Uh, Darren, your thoughts? So... I actually had some issues with Socrates' argument here. I have issues with it, but I, I also get like um, that he's trying to make a point about the good. Because here on, on this section you just read, ultimately he puts all pleasures and pains at all times on an equal scale. Like it doesn't matter if the, if the pleasure or pain is very far in the future. We're going to weigh exactly the same as it is now. As, it, as if it's happening now, which like, I don't think we actually do that. Like if there's a pleasure or pain really far in the future, like, as he said, there's a probability kind of calculation and, you know, something that might happen 50 years from now. Like, I, I don't, I don't actually know if it's rational to weigh it exactly the same as something that's immediately in front. Of, I'm not saying it has no weight, but here, like his argument clearly is putting everything on an equal, all pains and pleasures universally across time on sort of an equal scale and weighing that and, and, and then balancing that. Like, first of all, that's like kind of impossible. But secondly, even if it were possible, like, I don't know if that's rational because something, again, like really far in the future, like, at least from a human perspective and what are we're capable of doing and knowing and thinking, it doesn't seem, I don't know if that's rational. So I, I don't know, when I was reading this, I, I, was, I wasn't really sure about this argument hmm. um but of, but i do see socrates's point in that 
like as you were saying like it's hard for us to know what is ultimately good because something that seems like a good idea might turn out for the worst like many years from now but i guess what socrates and maybe plato often do is that they're pointing out that maybe hypothetically there is this thing that is ultimately good it's just very hard for us uh, as a human being to access it or to know it and actually this comes back to um I listened to uh, last week's podcast and I was a bit saddened. There wasn't that much discussion of the poem because um, I, I love that section. I think it's so provocative. And like one of the things that the poem surprisingly says is that um, the problem with uh, saying that it's hard to be good, th the reason why it's wrong is that it's actually, according to Simonides, it's impossible to be good yeah. <laughs> because things are always changing or always susceptible to failing that like as a human being, we can't be good. So and then there was this lovely line in the poem where like he'll be satisfied with just any ordinary good that human can achieve and he'll praise that. Otherwise, it'll be nothing to praise. <laughs> so I don't know, like like there, there's all these tensions in Plato, right? Like there is this ideal he thinks that we need to be open to and head towards like that metaphor in Ephedrus about heading towards the good. Once we find something on Earth that we love, that's when the journey begins. Um, but there's always a tension because like in the Phaedrus or in the poem here, for instance, it's not like we ever attain it. Like we grab the good and we have it and it's ours or we become the good. There's always um, a distance there, too. So I, I think maybe some of, often some of the confusions about Plato, Plato may come from these these uh, tensions. It, it just comes up here again, like between whether we can know something that's universally good, <laughs> that's universally good across all time, but also where the human being sit actual human being with our human capacity sits mm. in relation to that so sort of have to think it all at once which mm. isn't always easy well that's for sure yeah and it's actually really interesting that you brought the poem back into it that it said it is impossible to be good it's only possible to become good i think is what he's saying to be good itself would be impossible so that's a good point to bring into this discussion uh whether uh he's putting good and bad on the same scale at the same time. I think this section in the next part that I was going to read from 356A to 357A maybe addresses that, uh, if I get time to read it. There's just this paragraph that says, since this is so, I will say to them, answer me this, do things of the same size appear to you larger when seen near at hand and smaller when seen from a distance? And here I think he's talking about the relativity of time. So I think he's cautioning us that we don't put it on the same scale, uh, that we factor time into the equation, because time, there's lots of probabilities that will come into play. The more time that passes, the more probabilities that will come into play. So we'll see if we get this, to this section, but I think that was, uh, I'm glad you brought up that point, because I think I think he does address it. So thanks. Um, Steve, your thoughts? On one of uh, Darren's earlier points about um, the difficulties of humans to go after a long-term good instead of short-term. It's uh, just to point out that that's something that happens like all the time. Just think of uh, parents raising uh, young children. Everything they're doing in order for that child to survive is, is for the long-term good of that survival. And they put up many short-term pleasures and uh, things that might be most convenient for them. So that's, that's another thing. And then uh, your footnote 15, talking about what uh, Prometheus gave to humans and what Zeus retained. I think it's an excellent metaphor to talk talking about just 
what Zeus or the gods or some foundation uh, keeps that uh, requires uh, people to mm-hmm. uh, be subservient in order to, uh, you know, worship or give precedence to some other, the other or otherness over and above. That's like mm-hmm. something that the gods uh, withheld for themselves. Thanks. And thanks for bringing that perspective into that story of Epimetheus and Prometheus, which is the one that Protagoras gave in his first speech. And yeah, I hadn't thought about that Zeus retaining the power of political wisdom, because then that would allow people to seek that which is greater than their immediate pleasure, I guess, maybe. It's interesting, actually, that you brought that up because in the conclusion, maybe just I'll shift to the conclusion, actually. Now, here, this is from 361b to 361e. Maybe I'll just read this here because Socrates does talk about Prometheus here and he talks about forethought. So the the story again about Epimetheus and Prometheus was that they were given the power to distribute, um, to furnish and to distribute powers to all of the living species. Uh, Epimetheus begged Prometheus to do this on his own and Prometheus said, okay. Epimetheus distributed all the powers, but he forgot about time and so he before his time ran out he had distributed all the powers to all of the species except humans and so he did not exercise forethought about the probabilities in time that he would run out of powers to distribute and so socrates has this wonderful line at the end here so i'll just read this bit starting at 361b it seems to me that our discussion has turned on us and if it had a voice of its own it would say mockingly socrates and protagoras how ridiculous you are both of you Socrates, you said earlier that virtue cannot be taught, but now you are arguing the very opposite and have attempted to show that everything is knowledge, justice, temperance, courage, in which case virtue would appear to be eminently teachable. On the other hand, if virtue is anything other than knowledge, as Protagoras has been trying to say, then it would clearly be unteachable. But if it turns out to be wholly knowledge, as you now urge, Socrates, it would be very surprising indeed if virtue would not be taught. Now, Protagoras maintained at first that it could be taught, but now he thinks the opposite, urging that hardly any of the virtues turn out to be knowledge. On that view, virtue could hardly be taught at all. Now, Protagoras, seeing that we have gotten this topsy-turvy and terribly confused, I am most eager to clear it up, and I would like us, having come this far, to continue until we come through to what virtue is in itself, and then to return to inquire about whether it can or cannot be taught, so that Epimetheus might not frustrate us a second time in this inquiry, as he neglected us in the distribution of powers and abilities in your story. I like the Prometheus character in your story better than Epimetheus. Since I take a Promethean forethought over my life as a whole, I pay attention to these things, and if you are willing, as I said at the beginning, I would be pleased to investigate them along with you. And then Protagoras concludes, Socrates, I commend your enthusiasm and the way you find your way through an argument. I really don't think I am a bad man, certainly the last man to harbor ill will. Indeed, I've told many people that I admire you more than anyone I have met, certainly more than anyone in your generation, and I say that I would not be surprised if you gain among men high repute for wisdom. We will examine these things later, whenever you wish. Now it is time to turn our attention elsewhere. And there's that kind of irony there that Protagoras was the one who was willing to be long-winded and never wanted to end, and Socrates kept saying, I'm busy, I need to get out of here, let's let's wrap this thing up sooner. And now Socrates at the end is saying, well, I'm willing to stay around and discuss this. And Protagoras is the one who brings things to an end. So I, I really like that. But it, again, in there, so, you know, Socrates says that he takes a Promethean forethought 
over my life as a whole. And when he says my life as a whole, that's actually recalling what uh, we heard Protagoras saying earlier. Protagoras said, I, I won't tell you what I think about it immediately. I will take the view of my life as a whole and give you that answer. So they kind of both take that perspective of time and, and what they're saying. So thanks for, for bringing that up. And I think that's a really good connection to the conclusion. Darren. Yeah, I love this ending. So I, I guess something we haven't really, um, we haven't brought up yet is that section where he talks about the art of measurement as being our salvation in life. So I feel like it relates to some of the things you're saying, some of the things in this last passage about taking a perspective of our life as a whole, mm -hmm. but it really sort of raises the stakes when this knowledge is framed as our salvation in life and saving our lives. When I read that, I can't help but think that, you know, of course, Socrates was executed. So I, I don't know what to make of that connection, but I can't help but think of it. And I'm sure the readers of this dialogue back then would be thinking, would have that in mind too. But also apparently this dialogue takes place at the uh, height of uh, Athens's power and prestige and grandeur. And so apparently everything is downhill from here. So it's, it's a bit chilling. And Athens is going to lose a war against Sparta. It's like Plato raising a question, like there's something they haven't figured out here, mm. even though this is important. And so I just want to make a couple observations about this last section, I guess. Um, so I, I was just uh, looking at this part about how um, Socrates says our discussion has turned on us. I really like this because it sort of makes a philosophical discussion like it has a life of its own, <laughs> uh, like it personifies it. And I think that's very much in keeping with, you know, uh, Socrates emphasis on dialectic and the social aspects of philosophy and truth. So I really like how he sort of personifies the discussion itself. And um, okay, I, I sort of remember what I was going to say before to be the last thing, which is that regarding like the difficulty of knowing what ultimately is good, like across all time, or as they're saying in this last, uh, this conclusion here, like they still haven't figured out what virtue is. So if you can't figure out what virtue is, virtue itself is, then how can you know whether it can be taught or not so that there's difficulties about knowing these things i don't know i feel like they might be they might be permanent in a way i don't know but i i think if you if you have this view though then what would be best for us is to always be i guess open like what is best for us is not any particular doctrine that tells us you know this is what is the right thing to do for all time and all contexts from thousands of years ago to now or across different cultures, of course, there's going to be variation, right? In different contexts. I think even uh, Steve mentioned like the Inuit or something in previous, <laughs> like, you know, when, when the climate is and the weather is very different and the, and <laughs> uh, so of course it's going to be different in different contexts. I actually think this is the thing that Plato wants to attune us to that it's ultimately, it's not any particular doctrine or any definition of the virtues that ultimately is the good thing. We have to be open to the possibility that, the good might manifest itself in unique and special and surprising ways. And I feel like the dialogues actually do this. Like they, they always show like a very conventional view of what people think the good or a virtue is like temperance is walking slowly and appearing in a certain way. And, you know, usually it's very aristocratic, but it's, it might not be, of course, that virtue totally blows up that definition or those perceptions, those conventions. Yeah. So what is ultimately important is not a doctrine about the good or a theory of how to live our lives, but just being openness to the good itself. This dialogue won't help us like understand what that <laughs> entails, but um, I think it's also pointing to this. And of course, the aporia that this dialogue ends up on, 
like almost all the other dialogues, like just emphasis emphasizes that point, right? Like it's it's getting us to be open to the question and not like, oh, you know, I read this book, I know exactly what virtue is now, and I just have to follow the directions and I will be a good person. No, that is that is that's almost like anti-philosophical for Plato. So I know that's for instance, Steve, in, in previous conversations on this dialogue, he was like, what did this dialogue teach us? What does this dialogue tell us? Like, I, I'm not getting anything from this. It's just raising all these problems and questions. But I think that that's precisely, I think what Plato's purpose is, like, is to raise the problems and the questions. And he's not just doing it arbitrarily either. Oh, this is a fun thing to do. Like it, it ties in with this view of the good and what is ultimately good and what's ultimately important for us. Hmm. Interesting. And, and what you said makes, reminds me of um, the statesman when it said that we shouldn't get too attached to a particular constitution when constitutions become inflexible uh, and we think that a particular constitution maybe in the context of virtue a particular constitution is virtuous we cling to that and we should be changing things as we learn more is I think what what was the conclusion I read from the statesman and it kind of just tied into what you said whether virtue has a limit in time I think is kind of the question that you brought up and certainly I think what you said about virtue manifesting itself differently at different times, I think is is interesting. And also interesting that you related what Socrates is saying to what he was eventually executed for, which was corrupting the virtue of the youth. And the people who condemned Socrates felt, I guess, that they knew what virtue was, and they knew they felt that they knew that Socrates had corrupted that virtue. And Socrates paid for that with his life. And it was something he was willing to pay for. So maybe he was more virtuous than those who judged him less virtuous. Uh, so interesting connection there. Uh, maybe that's that. Maybe that's really a big part of the background to this. So thanks for that, Steve. Put in uh, some last two cents for the sophists. Just that uh, again, from the image that we have when you think of sophists, you know, even if in this dialogue, you know, there might be some praise for them, it's it's not, uh, it's a negative view. So from the, you know, the, the view that uh, we've gotten, you know, most likely from Plato's, uh, you know, being so prominent is that the sophists are negative, is a negative view. But I think also that what they were proposing was more of a relativistic uh, and experimental view. So I think their uh, teachings and what they were uh, proposing might be considered, you know, if, if we looked at it in an open-handed way, long-term, you know, not just not just this dialogue, but just keeping in mind that what they did propose is something that, you know, might be more... Uh, adaptable towards the society that we have in the way of, of the scientific inquiry and experimentalism and reason. So that was it. Thank you for a great podcast. Well, thank you. And and that's actually a really good point to to end on because we're we are actually out of time, unfortunately, but it's been a great discussion. I just thought I would read maybe this one section because I think it relates very much to what you said and and to what Darren said that we didn't get to, which is that part between 356a and 357a. And I'll just read this one paragraph and then we'll wrap it up because I think it talks about the need to measure. And that may relate to what you just said, Steve, about kind of our modern approach of measuring things and our, our scientific ability now to measure things. Not that virtue is something that's scientific or knowledge is something that's not necessarily scientific itself. It's used to make scientific measurements, but 
so maybe there is a role for sophists here. Maybe we need to be knowledgeable consumers, and maybe that's part of this whole uh, the whole purpose of this dialogue. So I'll just read this point about measurement because I think it's it's interesting and it wait it relates to this weighting of probabilities. So Socrates says, since this is so, I will say to them, answer me this: Do things of the same size appear to you larger when seen near at hand and smaller when seen from a distance, or not? They would say they do. And similarly for thickness and pluralities, and equal sounds seem larger when near at hand, softer when farther away, they would agree. If then our well-being depended upon this, doing and choosing large things, avoiding and not doing the small ones, what would we see as our salvation in life? Would it be the art of measurement or the power of appearance? And that, there's that word that Darren brought in near the beginning, the power of appearance. While the power of appearance often makes us wander all over the place in confusion, often changing our minds about the same things and regretting our actions and choices with respect to things large and small, the art of measurement in contrast would make the appearances lose their power by showing us the truth, would give us peace of mind firmly rooted in the truth, and would save our life. Therefore, would these men agree with this in mind that the art of measurement would save us or some other art? I agree, the art of measurement would. What if our salvation in life depended on our choices of odd and even, when the greater and the lesser had to be counted correctly, either the same kind against itself or one kind against the other, whether it be near or remote? What then would save our life? Surely nothing other than knowledge, specifically some kind of measurement, since that is the art of the greater and the lesser? In fact, nothing other than arithmetic, since it's a question of the odd and the even? Would these men agree with us or not? Protagoras thought they would agree. So I'll just end with that discussion about measurement, uh, because measurement is something that comes up throughout Plato's dialogues. And here he brings it into play again. And again, that you know seemingly curious reference to the odd and even, but he gives a really interesting clue to the odd and even there and why he keeps bringing it up. He says, when the greater and the lesser had to be counted correctly, either the same kind against itself, which I read as the even, or one kind against the other, which I read as the odd. So that's a really interesting reference there, and that's something that I would like to explore at one point. So uh, at the end conclusion of all of this, uh, we don't have a definition of virtue, but I think that whether virtue is a form, which is a question that Adam, I think, may have asked, maybe it was in our first episode on the Protagoras, um, I would conclude, I don't think Socrates thinks it's a form. And I'm not sure that Protagoras has demonstrated that it's a form. So I think it's it seems to be maybe from our discussion, if we can make one conclusion, whatever it is, it's based on knowledge. Uh, so I think that's that's probably a fair conclusion about it. And you know, we can see how that plays out in maybe our next episode. When I thought we would look at our next episode at the lesser Hippias or Hippias Minor, as it's sometimes called, Hippias being one of the sophists in attendance here, and that's a short dialogue. Um, and maybe we can get some more ideas about the sophist approach to things by looking at uh, at that dialogue, the, the Lesser Hippias or Hippias Minor, in our next episode. And it, we'll be able to do that one in one episode. It, it's short enough that we can do it in one episode. But maybe some of what we've learned here, uh, we can take to that. So, um, Darren, any closing words? Well, I just uh, wanted to respond to, <clears throat> excuse me, what Steve said. I'll try to do it quickly. So he says that the... Um, the sophists take a more relativistic view um, about the good, or I guess like maybe I don't know if they would even want to use that word like like to our ways of life and what might be good for us. Steve was saying how that would be um that might be more relevant to our day and time. I don't know if that actually contradicts what 
I was saying that Plato wants to get to, though. Like, Plato doesn't present us with a doctrine of virtue that if you follow, you know, you will be a good person. Like, I think that's actually anti-philosophical and almost anti-virtuous for Plato that to follow a doctrine like that, like so rotely. So, like, I don't think Steve was contradicting what I was saying, that we have to be open to new possibilities and what might be good in different situations and how the good often manifests itself in surprising ways. Uh, for instance, like Socrates and what into how Socrates exhibits what a courage in the intellectual or philosophical life or doing philosophy looks like. But I, I think the, where the difference might be, though, is that Plato would say, though, that in all these different situations, like, how do you know something actually really is good? So Steve says, like, in different situations, you know, a, a relativistic view might be better. But like, how do you know in that specific situation or context that is actually the good thing and i think that's what plato's attuning us to like to become attuned to that is to be able to recognize and also do the good thing in different situations but that's the most important thing it's not like a full-blown theory of like every specific you know emotion or whatever you have to do in one time that's impossible to capture as socrates was trying to i think demonstrate with his very universal view of mm -hmm. calculation where all where everything across all time is put on the same scale mm -hmm. um so anyway yeah i just want to say that i i don't know like I don't know what Steve says strongly contradicts what I was trying to say, but I think there is a difference in that Plato still thinks in each of those situations, you still have to know what the good is in order to distinguish, in order to be able to say something is good, even in a specific context, even if it differs from a different context. Yeah, um, I mean, I, yeah. I read the I wrote, I read the relativistic point of Steve maybe a little bit differently, and I think it may it may relate somehow to this idea of waiting. Uh, that waiting when you wait things, you're always doing a relativistic measure, as Socrates says, you're waiting greater against smaller, more against what less. And so somehow we have to learn how to do that waiting. And whether it's the sophists that teach us or some other method of learning, I guess we need to learn to do that waiting. Uh, and I guess we won't find out this episode how to do that. We may never find out how to do that, but maybe we'll see some signs in the lesser hippias or hippias minor how that waiting works or doesn't work. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll have a chance to uh, explore that thought, I think, a little bit further. Eva, your ideas? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for starting this rough conversation. Mm -hmm. And James, thank you for uh, leaving it open-ended. I think maybe that's the main thing about virtue or, or human being. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and that's a very good way to end on an open-ended way. Uh, so I appreciate that, Eva. So I wanted to thank everybody again for being here and, and for being part of this three-part discussion on the Protagoras. I think it's been such an interesting discussion and on a dialogue that I found tricky, very tricky, but maybe that's deliberate on Plato's part uh, because sophistry could be tricky, or at least at least a young person's understanding of a sophist could be tricky. And maybe that's why he brings Hippocrates into it right at the beginning. And so maybe maybe we're equipped to deal with sophistry. Uh, maybe Socrates is equipped to deal with it, but is everybody equipped to deal with it? So we'll see how maybe we can find some means of weighting our knowledge over time. And maybe that's something that Socrates would encourage us to do is this, use this art of measurement, whatever that is, to find the proper weightings of probabilities over time. And that's maybe our path to the good. We'll never reach the good, 
but it's our path to the good and that's a good path to be on. So, so thanks for all for attending. I uh, look forward to hopefully seeing you in two weeks for the uh, Lesser Hippias or Hippias Minor. Uh, looking forward to that discussion. And uh, thanks again for a great discussion today. I'll end the recording now and um, invite anybody who wants to stay online for a casual half-hour unrecorded discussion uh, in Plato's Cafe. Uh, you're more than welcome to. And uh, otherwise, hope to see you in two weeks. Thank you.